Horses never mess with snakes. Oh, my father must have meant this mare. Some cowboys even shun the ways of cowboys in their trail herd days. We love stories! It's time for the apple seed, filled with stories for you and your family. All kinds of tales from all kinds of tellers. I'm Sam Payne, and it's always such a pleasure to have you tune in and bring these stories into your home and into your heart. And we always hope that the stories that we bring you here on the show spark memories for you that you can share with the people that you love. And, you know, we share all kinds of stories on the show. Tall tales, fairy tales, folk tales, ancient tales, modern tales, personal tales, family tales, animal tales, all kinds of stories. And every once in a while, we get kind of fixated on a topic. And that's what happened to us today as we started listening to stories with horse references in them. So we were going to bring you a whole hour today filled with stories about horses and life with horses. We're going to hear from Ed Stivender and Paul Bliss and Joseph Bruchak and Jerry Brooks and Liz Weir and more and more and more stories and songs today that you're sure to love. And we're going to begin with a story from Ed Stivender. This is a story called The Squire's Bride, and it's about an arranged marriage which can be tricky. We're only going to give you this one spoiler alert. There is a point in this story in which you're going to see a horse in a wedding dress. The storyteller is the great Ed Stivender, and we're happy to bring you this tale, The Squire's Bride, here on The Appleseed. The old squire was a rich man. He thought he could get anything that he wanted with money. No, 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 said the farmer's daughter. He cannot have my heart, for I will not sell my heart for money. But, daughter dear, the farmer said, the squire, he will forgive our debt. And you're a maid not married yet. You would be wise to compromise and marry the squire. No, 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 said the farmer's daughter. I'll work the land because I'm as strong as any man. I'll pay that wretched debt with my toil and my sweat, but I will not marry the squire for money. The squire couldn't believe this. He said to the farmer, We'll make the wedding plans anyway. See that your daughter changes her mind by the wedding day, or all of the debt that you owe to me will be paid straight away. Have no fear, the farmer said. My daughter is as good as wed, and a fine bride she'll be. I'll change her mind, you'll see. You invite the guests, I'll do the rest, you'll see. A fine bride she'll be. And so the bargain was sealed. The farmer would give his daughter to the squire on his wedding day, and in return the squire would forgive the farmer's debt. Well, even if she won't agree willingly to marry me, I'll send for her on the wedding day. When she sees all my riches on display, her heart will melt. I can't believe that foolish farmer's daughter would prefer a life of hard work to being a nobleman's wife. The day of the wedding finally arrived. 
The house was filled with wedding guests. The bridal chamber had the wedding dress. The squire was in his Sunday best when he sent for his faithful servant. Run to the farmer now, my lad. What's been promised will be had. Just run over there and come right back and ask for what's been promised. So the lad ran to the farmer's gate, said, Oh, my master cannot wait. Give me what you promised you would give him for the wedding. Now the farmer had never explained the arrangement to his daughter. And so now, being too embarrassed to go himself, he said, "Uh, Run to the meadow now, my lad. What's been promised will be had. You'll find her working at the plow. Take her with my blessings to the squire now. And so the lad ran to the meadow and saw the farmer's beautiful daughter working the field behind her favorite horse. He ran up and said, My master's in a hurry today. I must return without delay with what your father promised you would give him for the wedding. Oh, and what was it my father promised the squire on his wedding day? Uh, well, I don't know. In all the haste, I forgot to ask. But your father said just now I'd find her working at the plow. Aha, so that's what they've been up to. And with a twinkle in her eye, the young woman said, Oh, my father must have meant this mare. Take her with my blessings, please. I'm sure she'll satisfy the squire's needs. And so the lad jumped on the horse and rode like the wind. Back to the squire's house again, leaving the house outside. He went in and said, Squire, I've got her. She's a beauty. I left her right outside. Well, take her up to the bridal chamber. But, Squire, how can I? Do as I say without delay, lad. It is my wedding day. Yes, Squire. A few moments later, the lad came down, mopping his brow. Well, Squire, that's the most difficult job you've ever given me. She's very unruly. I had to tie her to the bedpost. Oh, well... I knew she was stubborn, but I didn't think she was that stubborn. Lad, when she saw all the wedding gifts around the wedding bed, what did she say? What did she say? Oh, squire, all she says is, nay, nay. Well, have her dressed in the wedding gown, and when you're finished, bring her down. Squire, how can I? Get some handmaidens to help you. And so with the help of all the handmaidens in the house... They dressed that horse in a wedding gown, complete with wreath and floral crown, tied little ribbons in its mane and tail, and topped it off with a wedding veil. (laughs) Meanwhile, down below, the squire walked proud and tall. When he heard a commotion in the passageway, he said, Elegant guests, my passions are ablaze. It is with the greatest pride that I introduce to you the squire's bride. And as the great door swung open, a wild-eyed horse in a white wedding gown, complete with wreath and floral crown, came tripping through the door. The wedding guests' laughter shook the raft. The squire gazed and gawked at what he saw, for with a floral wreath tumbling down over one eye, the horse trotted through the hall. Many have told this story since then. They say the squire never went courting again. A thum 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 thum. Bada ba.
<laughs> a jazzy musical take on an ancient tale, The Squire's Bride, told by the great storyteller Ed Stivender. Coming up now, we've got a song, a song called The Iron Horse, and you can bet it's about the railroad. Steam locomotives were referred to as iron horses right from when they were first built. Before that, horses pulled trains, and so when the horses were replaced by a steam engine, the engine was called an iron horse. This is an old song called The Iron Horse from the days of the building of the first transcontinental railroad in the 1800s. And bringing you the song is the folk duo Otter Creek. Happy to bring it to you here on the Appleseed. Iron horse draws nigh with his smoke nostrils high, eating fire. Well, he blazes, drinking water. Well, he grazes, then that steam rushes out, whistles loud, clear the route. For the iron horse is coming with the steam in his snout. Him roads to come on, make them level for the run. Dig tunnels through the mountains, turn the currents of the fountains, bridges, build stations, make lay the track he will take. For the iron horse is coming with the train in his wake. When the railroad passes by and the iron horse draws nigh, we'll raise our flags and rally without shouts in Salt Lake Valley. When it comes through our land, let us all be on hand to mount the cars together with the proud happy band. Iron horse, mighty steed, o'er the plains let him speed Till he joins both oceans and bring us all our ocean things will come soon as true, we'll have all we can do For the great Union Railroad will bring the devil through There's a jaunty little thing, uh, Otter Creek with The Iron Horse, a song that goes back to the 1800s and the building 
of the first transcontinental railroad, the Iron Horse, of course, because in the old days, railroad locomotives were referred to as Iron Horses. Before they came along, trains were pulled by horses, replace the horses, and suddenly you've got an Iron Horse in its place. Here's another tune while we're singing songs uh, from Patty Tootie. This is The Blind Harper from an album called The Roving Jewel in this song. Patty Tootie sings the tale of a horse and the stealing of horses. It's a song to teach us to be thankful for what we have and the things we must sometimes do to keep the things we love close. Here's Patty Tootie with The Blind Harper on the Appleseed. Stay home. 
Tootie with the Blind Harper here on the Appleseed. We're thinking about horses today, and it's been kind of a musical start to our hour. Everything from Ed Stivender's jazzy telling of The Squire's Bride to the tune The Iron Horse from Otter Creek and that piece from Patty Tootie, the Blind Harper. We're going to wrap up this section of the Appleseed today with a poem. This is from Paul Bliss, and it's a poem called Dream Mine. And in this poem, Paul Bliss describes preparing for a storm. Here's Dream Mine by Paul Bliss on the Appleseed. I split my reins and run them through the hobbles on my horse. I rubbed and blew into my hands to warm them up, of course. Caught by surprise an April storm. Well, this mine shaft opened wide. Well, spring storms don't last, and the wind was cold, so we'll wait her out inside. Now, Harry dug many holes at tunnels, shafts, and drifts. The treasures, though, eluded him of the Aztec's golden gifts. And it's funny how your mind conceives with racing thoughts on end. How curious a man can be when greed he so intends. So down I start into that shaft with treasures for to find. How long, how far, I do not know. Well, I'd lost all track of time. It bended left, it bended right, it took a steep down turn. I banged my head and lost my light. Oh, now this darkness was of concern, because oh my hand I couldn't see, this awful tomb was black. But greed, it drove me onward, and I wasn't turning back. On hands and knees I started down, the shaft it narrowed still. The ceiling rocked, the sloughing walls, the loose dirt I could feel. And then fear overcame me, and I had lost my calm. I couldn't turn around, and I dreaded to go on. And then the shaft narrowed more. At times I had to crawl. Then down the shaft is 50 feet. There's light upon the wall. So I wiggled, wiggled faster for the fresh air I could smell. And I forgot about the treasures of this dark entombing hell. And then the shaft narrowed more. My shoulders wouldn't fit. And I tried to push myself on through to get on out of it. With shoulders scraped and bleeding and the outside in full view. So I stretched my arms in front of me and tried to slither through. But with the steepness of the tunnel, loose dirt pulled by my knees, built up around my chest and it wouldn't let me free. Exhausted by the struggle, self-pity was my friend. I gave up hope. I prayed to God and waited for the end. And then thoughts about my family and their voices, oh, so dear. And me stuck up in this mine shaft. Would they even find me here? And then my thoughts at just 18... Oh, how small I felt inside when I remembered that I'd voted for a Democrat and crawled right on outside. 
poem called Dream Mine here on the Appleseed. More stories, poems, and songs coming up after a quick break. Jerry Brooks, Joseph Bruschak, uh, Liz Weir, and even a little something from me and my pal Ryan Shoup coming up here on the Appleseed. I'm Sam Payne. You're listening to The Appleseed. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to The Appleseed. Here's Sam Payne. It's great to have you back with us on today's episode of The Appleseed. Before the break, you heard The Blind Harper from Paddy Tutti. You heard a poem called Dream Mine from Paul Bliss. You heard a little something from Otter Creek, an old tune called The Iron Horse. And you heard a story called The Squire's Bride, told for you in inimitable style by Ed Stivender. Now, up next, we've got a, a little poem from Jerry Brooks. And, and she relates here in this poem the visions of the wind and land as they stretch out before her beautiful pastures and refreshing air. It's a poem called Anthem. Jerry Brooks on the Appleseed. And in the morning, I was riding out through the breaks of that long plain and leather creaking in the quieting would sound with trot and trot again. I lived in time with horse hoof falling. I listened well and heard the calling the earth my mother bade to me, though I would still ride wild and free. And as I flew out on the morning, before the bird, before the dawn, I was the poem, I was the song. My heart would beat the world a warning. Those horsemen rode all with me, and we were good. We were free. We were not told, but ours the knowing. We were the native strangers there, among the things the prairie growing. To know this gave us more the care to let the grass keep at its growing. Let the streams keep at their flowing. We knew the land would not be ours. No one has the awful powers to claim the vast and common nesting, to own the life that gave him birth, much less to rape his mother earth and ask her for a mother's blessing, and to ever live in peace with her, and, dying, come to rest with her. Oh, we would ride and we would listen, hear the message on the wind. The grass and morning dew would glisten until the sun would dry and blend the grass to ground and air to skying. And we knew by bird or insect flying or by their mood or by their song if time and moon were right or wrong for fitting works or rounds to weather. The critter coats and leaves of trees might flash some signal with the breeze or wind and sun on flower or feather. We knew our way from dawn to dawn and far beyond, far beyond. It was the old ones with me riding out through the fog fall of dawn and 
they would press me to deciding if we were right or we were wrong. For time come, we were punching cattle for men who knew not spur nor saddle, who come with locusts in their purse to scatter loose upon this earth. The savage had not found this prairie till some who hired us come this way to make the grasses pay and pay for some raw greed no wise nor wary regard for grass could satisfy. The old ones wept. So did I. Do you remember? We'd come jogging to town with jingle in our jeans. And in the wild night we'd be bogging up to our hats in last month's dreams. It seemed the night could scarcely hold us with all those spirits to embold us while horses waiting on three legs. We'd drain the night down to the dregs. But Just before Beyond Redemption, we'd gather back to what we were. We'd leave the money left us there and head our horses toward the wagon, but in the ruckus in the world, we were the wolves of all the world. The grass was growing scarce for grazing would soon turn sod or soon turn bare and money men set to replacing the good and true of spirit there we could not say there was no knowing how ill the future winds were blowing some cowboys even shunned the ways of cowboys in their trail herd days but where's the gift not turned for plunder Forgot that we are what we do, not the stuff we lay claim to. I dream the spell that we were under. I throw in with a cowboy band and set out horseback across this land. So, mornings now, I go out riding through pastures of my solemn plain and leather creaking in the quieting will sound with trot and trot again I'll live in time with horse hoof falling I'll listen well and hear the calling the earth my mother bids to me and I will still ride wild and free And as I ride out on the morning, before the bird, before the dawn, I'll be this poem, I'll be this song. My heart will beat the world a warning. Those horsemen now will ride all with me and we'll be good. We'll be free. piece called Anthem 
performed by Jerry Brooks here on The Appleseed. Up next, we've got a story from Joseph Bruchak. This is one of his Bill Greenfield stories. Bill Greenfield, kind of a tall tale character that takes the center stage in a lot of Joseph Bruchak's stories. And uh, this one's called Bill Greenfield and the Mosquitoes. Happy to bring it to you here on The Appleseed. Bill Greenfield and the Mosquitoes Up in the mountains, the insects are a lot fiercer than they are down in the flatlands. The horseflies are so big we have to tie the cows down in the fields or they'll carry them off. And we've also got bugs so small you wouldn't know they was there until they bit you. They're the punkies so tiny it takes ten men with strong eyesight to see even one of them. And then there are the noceums which no one has ever seen. But some say the worst of all are the black flies, which look pretty much like miniature great white sharks with wings, except they're hungrier and much less merciful. Me, though, I tend to disagree. To me, there is nothing more fearsome than a real Adirondack mosquito. Well, back in the old days, folks say, mosquitoes were bigger and fiercer than they are today. Nowadays, around the North Country, it's a rare occasion when you see a mosquito much bigger than a small crow, though there are still a few good-sized ones around. I remember one night when I was camping with my father up on the Cedar River flow. I woke up in the night and was just about to step out of the tent, but as I was about to unzip that flap, I thought I heard something, and I listened. It was a couple of those big mosquitoes. They were outside our tent, hiding in the bushes, and they were talking to each other. Hey, one of them said. One of them's about to come out. You want to grab him, or should I? Let me do it, said the second mosquito. Should we eat him here, or take him down into the swamp? Heck no, said the first one. We take him down there, and the big guys will take him away from us. Well, as you can imagine, after hearing that, I didn't stir out of that tent till daylight. But mosquitoes of that size are pretty rare now, not like back in Bill Greenfield's day. One day, Bill Greenfield was out skinning out his old horse, which had just died for the second time. That horse in itself was quite a story. It was at least 30 years old when it passed away, and it had been known for miles around because of the stories Bill told about it and because it was so good at drawing a load. When folks would ask Bill why that horse was so strong, he'd tell him this story. It seems Bill had gotten that horse from a local trader known for making sharp bargains. The price had been so good that Bill just knew there had to be something wrong with that horse, but... After he'd had it for a few months, he figured out that maybe he'd actually out-traded that trader. For that horse was gentle and smart and a good worker, too. It would go right into its own stall at the end of every day. And things went along fine until the day Bill was drawn a load of fence posts on his sledge. He was about four miles from home when all of a sudden, wham! That horse keeled right over in its tracks. Well, that was when Bill figured out what had been wrong with it. That horse had a bad heart. And now he was stuck with a dead animal. Made him feel pretty bad, but not so much because he was out-traded as because he'd grown fond of that beast. He managed to get it unharnessed, and then rather than making a trip back, decided he would skin it out right there on the spot. So he skinned that horse out, threw the hide up on top of his load, grabbed hold, and dragged that sledge back home by himself. Seeing as how it was only four miles, and the load didn't weigh much more than a ton, he barely worked up a sweat. 
but when he pulled into his yard, a peddler was just coming down the lane, having sold some kittles to Bill's wife. That peddler saw the horse hide and offered Bill 50 cents for it. That was a good price back then, and Bill sold it on the spot. Then Bill went on in, had his dinner, and did his afternoon chores. It was getting towards evening, and he remembered he'd left the barn door open. But just as soon as he reached that door, he started to hear a strange noise from the back of the barn. It sounded like somebody either rattling something or tapping out a rhythm. Bill listened closer. He realized that noise was coming from the direction of his horse's stall. Well, he walked back to take a look, not sure what he'd see, and there, big as life, was his horse. It had only fainted. Soon as it regained consciousness, it had walked all the way home and gone right to its stall, but without its skin, it was just about froze to death. And what Bill had heard were its knees knocking together and its teeth chattering from the cold. Well, Bill thought about chasing after that peddler, but it would have been no use. That man was long gone. Hmm, <laughs> what was he going to do? His horse was about to freeze to death. Well, that was when Bill remembered he had a green moose hide hanging on the fence out back. He went and got it, draped it over his horse's back. That horse seemed real grateful, and it warmed up right away. In fact, next day when Bill went out to the barn, he found that hide had grown right into place. That horse was twice as good as new. It was the first skin transplant in history. And few know that Bill Greenfield done it. And that horse was... Not just as good as new, as a matter of fact, it was twice as strong as any horse he'd ever seen, and it would no longer eat hay or oats. All it wanted in the wintertime were twigs, and in the summer it would go down to the pond and browse on the water lilies. Well, that was the horse that had finally died for good and all, and now Bill was about to bury it, rather than trying to skin it out for a second time, which, even after death, didn't seem like a fair thing to do to any animal. That horse had passed away in the far field, right at the edge of Bill's sugar bush of maple trees. Bill was a little sloppy about cleaning things up, and even though it was a good three months since the end of the sap run, his big pan they used to cook down the syrup was still there leaning against a tree. Bill hadn't gotten too far in digging a hole to bury that horse when he heard a sound that made his blood run cold. If you were to hear that sound today, you'd think it was a squadron of B-52s going overhead, but back then, a sound like that could mean only one thing. It was a swarm of Adirondack mosquitoes, and they were heading his way. Bill looked around. There was not a building within a mile, and he didn't have a weapon with him. Those mosquitoes would catch the scent of that dead horse any moment, and Bill knew he'd be a goner. Those mosquitoes were so close now, he could see their wings knocking the top branches off the trees. He looked around in desperation, and that was when he saw it. That sap pan right at hand. Bill grabbed it, jumped into the hole he dug for his horse, pulled the sap pan over the top, and then held his breath. Well, sure enough, those mosquitoes came swarming down. The next thing he heard was the most awful slurping and crunching you could imagine as they ate that whole horse, hide, meat, hoof, and bone. Then things got real quiet, and Bill thought for a minute they might have gone away. But then a tapping noise started, and Bill knew what it was. Those mosquitoes had caught his scent, and they were drilling their way right through the metal pan. Before long, one of those noses popped through right next to him, but Bill took a stone up off the ground and clinched it right over. Then another one poked through, and Bill bent that one too. Another one, another one, another one, another one, and Bill was pounding away like a blacksmith at his anvil, bending over those mosquitoes' beaks. 
Soon every one of those mosquitoes had drilled their way through the pan and had their noses bent over and stuck. Now, as you might imagine, that made every one of those mosquitoes who, even in the best times, have a disposition like a crosscut saw, get real angry. They started buzzing their wings to beat all get out. They buzzed so hard they actually lifted that sap pan right up into the air. And the next thing Bill knew, that old sap pan and all those mosquitoes were disappearing off toward the northeast. Bill Greenfield always said they must have gone on till they got over Lake Champlain and then got so tired they just let the weight pull them in and they sank and drowned. And if you don't believe that's what happened, he'd say, then how come you don't see no mosquitoes that big around here today? And, as the monkey said when he backed into the fan, I guess that's the end of my tale. Bill Greenfield and the Mosquitoes by Joseph Bruchak. Up next, we're going to hear a story called Going to Grannies. But first, we're going to take a quick break. I'm Sam Payne. See you in a minute. You're listening to The Appleseed. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to The Appleseed. Here's Sam Payne. It's great to have you back with us on today's episode of The Appleseed. Before the break, you heard Joseph Bruchak with one of his Bill Greenfield stories. Coming up now from Liz Weir, Going to Grannies. Happy to bring it to you on The Appleseed. Going to Grannies. Susie was going to stay with her granny for the holidays. She packed her bag putting in her socks, shoes, vest, pants, jeans, t-shirts, pyjamas and lots of other clothes until it was full to the very top. She took a book to read, a special toy to play with and a big bunch of bright yellow flowers for Granny. When she got to Granny's, she ran into the bedroom. She hopped into bed. Granny pulled up the covers, gave her a big kiss flicked off the light, closed the squeaky door, and Susie went, eh, eh, eh. Granny said, what's wrong, Susie? And Susie said, I'm lonely in here all by myself. I need something to keep me company. Well, said Granny, tomorrow night you can take the puppy to bed with you. So, the next night, Susie ran into the bedroom. She hopped into bed. The puppy hopped into bed. Granny pulled up the covers, gave her a big kiss, flicked off the light, closed the squeaky door. (coughs) 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 Granny said, what's wrong now, Susie? And Susie said, I'm still lonely. Well, said Granny, tomorrow night you can take the kitten to bed with you. So, the next night, Susie ran into the bedroom. She hopped into bed. The puppy hopped into bed. The kitten hopped into bed. Granny pulled up the covers, gave her a big kiss, flicked off the light, closed the squeaky door. Granny said, what's wrong now, Susie? And Susie said, I'm still lonely. Well, said Granny, 
Tomorrow night you can take the lamb to bed with you. So, the next night, Susie ran into the bedroom. She hopped into bed. The puppy hopped into bed. The kitten hopped into bed. The lamb hopped into bed. Granny pulled up the covers, gave her a big kiss, flicked off the light, closed the squeaky door. said, what's wrong now, Susie? And Susie said, I'm still lonely. Susie, said Granny, tomorrow night's your last night and I have only one animal left. I suppose you can take the horse with you tomorrow night. So the next night, Susie ran into the bedroom. She hopped into bed. The puppy hopped into bed. The kitten hopped into bed. The lamb hopped into bed and the horse hopped into bed. The bed went crash and the floor went crash and Granny's whole house went crash. Poor Granny had to go out and buy a new house. But this time she was clever. She bought a house with a big strong floor and a big strong bed that was big enough and strong enough to hold a little girl called Susie and a puppy and a kitten and a lamb and most of all a horse. Liz Weir with Going to Grannies here on The Appleseed. And in an hour that has featured so many poems and songs and stories about horses, I wanted to get in on the act myself. Here's Ryan Shoup and me with a tune called Hooves, Hide, and Mane about all the places we could think of in American history where the horse has been. Here's the tune on The Appleseed. For the cities, all the gold I carried here for Spanish fathers through the mountains of the West. And I saw them do their preaching, and I heard their story told. Bound for Santa Fe, I took them across the rivers of the blessed. I found the way for fathers, mothers, children to their homes. Right behind the moment, Moses' people lifted up their eyes. In some godforsaken land that blossomed like a desert rose. And I was there through sun and winter, heard their prayers and heard their cries. And with my hooves, I carved the rose that brought you where you go. And the sweat that won the West was on my hide. And through my mane, the wind of all your fortunes, they were blowing on my back your Will ever ride. Like lightning on my back rode all those young red shirted men, and they raced against the sun, carrying nothing but the mail. And I bore the ones who chased them there and chased them back again. And the boys who could outrun me lived to ride and tell the tale. Carve the rose that brought you where you go And the sweat that won the West was on my hide 
And through my mane, the wind of all your fortunes, they were blowing on my back. Your wildest hopes would ever ride. and Maine, performed by Ryan Shoup and me here on the Appleseed. Up next, a story from Glenda Bonin about her grandfather and a favorite horse. It's called Grandpa Al and Max. Happy to bring it to you here on the Appleseed. Grandpa Al always wore a cowboy hat. That's how I remember him. He never went far without his fiddle, either. What I didn't know until a few years ago was how Grandpa's cowboy hat and his fiddle made it possible for him to own the best horse he ever had, Max the Appaloosa. I found out about Max by accident when I was helping my father clean out the attic of his house in Portland, Oregon, a few years ago. Grandpa died when I was a little girl, so most of my knowledge about his early life came from the black-and-white photos in the family album. So when I found an old hat band in the bottom of a box full of clothes the day Dad and I poked around the attic, it reminded him about the story of Max. And as he fingered the hat band, he told me this story. In Wyoming, around 1880, when Grandpa Al was a young man, he had a hunger for adventure. For a while, he tried a number of different jobs, all of them requiring a rugged saddle horse, from working as an army scout to mining for gold. Mostly, however, he liked working for ranchers helping to deliver cattle to market. He was a popular guy on the trail because, well, he could brighten up a lonely evening for the other cowboys by playing his fiddle. He really liked that fiddle of his, and he loved being able to play music. Grandpa loved to ride horses, too, but, well, he never really had a horse he felt close to. Most of his horses he called make-do horses, since he usually got them after making a trade of one kind or another with some cowboy. He was a good horseman, nevertheless. But while he was pretty good with horses, he was really bad at playing poker. So when he got into a game at a place called Jackson Hole, all the other cowboys figured Al would lose his shirt again. He almost did, too. He placed a bet that included his hat and his fiddle, and then he announced that this was the last game of poker he would ever play. 
Almost everyone in the room felt bad for Al. They hated the idea of him losing his hat and his fiddle. What they didn't know was he was holding on to the one and only royal flush he ever had in his entire life. He won big that night, and he kept his word. He never did play poker again. Part of his winnings was a bag of silver quarters and an Appaloosa named Max with a star-like marking on his face. The fellow who lost Max said he was an extraordinary horse. Grandpa allowed that Max was better than the horse he rode in on, so he took Max and he traded his other horse in for a good saddle. It wasn't too long after that when my grandpa found out just how extraordinary Max really was. As a rule, Grandpa watched as those other fool cowboys showed off for the ladies and ran races through town to see who had the fastest horse. Some guy started to tease my Grandpa about being afraid he'd fall off his new horse in a race. Grandpa Al took just about all he could before he finally accepted the challenge. When they got to the starting line, well, it was as if Max suddenly came alive. Grandpa told everyone after the race that he didn't have to do anything but hold on tight to the reins. Max won that race, and he didn't even break a sweat. And with that win, Grandpa won his own form of respect on account of having such a fine horse. From that point on, well, Grandpa Al and Max were inseparable. Grandpa took very good care of Max, and whenever anyone announced a horse race, well, Max took very good care of Grandpa. Grandpa told everyone that his Appaloosa loved music because he would push his nose on the fiddle case whenever he wanted to hear a tune. Max seemed to understand my grandpa completely. Grandpa never tied Max up, never needed to. Even on the trail, Max always knew what to do and when to do it. Folks said Al and Max belonged together. One evening, just as my grandpa was about to settle down on the ground with his blanket, Max started to act crazy. He snorted, raced toward Grandpa, and shoved him aside with his nose. Then he started to kick and stomp all over Grandpa's blanket. That's when the rattler struck. Got Max on the front leg. Grandpa shot the snake, and then he did everything he could to try to save his horse. But nothing worked. Max died with his head in Grandpa's arms. Before Grandpa buried his horse, he cut off some hair from Max's mane and tail. Then Grandpa took his fiddle and went off into the countryside and lived in the hills for almost four months. When he finally came into town, he had a brand new hat band on his old cowboy hat, a hat band carefully braided and sewn from the mane and tail of his wonderful horse, Max. The hat band was drawn together at the front of Grandpa's hat, with a round piece of silver pounded thin from a quarter and etched with the outline of a star. After that, Grandpa Al settled down and married Grandma. He became a brakeman for the railroad to support his growing family. My father got the hat band when Grandpa died. And that morning in the attic, my father gave the hat band to me. As he pressed it into my hand, he told me that no one, particularly my grandpa, could ever understand why Max did what he did. Horses never mess with snakes. Well, one thing I know for certain, 
I'm sure glad I helped my dad clean out his attic that day. Otherwise, I might have missed hearing the story of the hat band, my grandpa, and Max, the Appaloosa. Glenda Bonin with Grandpa Al and Max. How about we wrap up with a piece called Hooves of the Horses in this hour that has featured so many songs and stories and poems about horses. This is Wiley Gustafson now. Now, you don't think you know Wiley Gustafson, but you do. You've heard him as the yodeling voice of Yahoo. Wiley Gustafson with Hooves of the Horses here on The Appleseed.
Wiley Gustafson with Hooves of the Horses. That wraps up an hour of the Appleseed in which we've been featuring stories and songs and poems about horses. The hour was written by Ashley Zollinger. Our producer is Jeff Simpson, our audio engineer, Stuart Foster. What a pleasure to be with you. You can find us online at byuradio.org slash Appleseed. Thousands of stories for your listening pleasure there. And, of course, you can Google the Appleseed podcast and subscribe for something new just about every day on the show. I'm Sam Payne, and I can't wait to be with you again. We'll see you next time on The Appleseed. Thanks for joining us for an hour of stories, music, and conversation made for you and your family and brought to you by The Appleseed. The show is a production of BYU Radio. We'll see you next time.